few years ago, there was a man in San Francisco by the name of Max Hawkins, and uh, Max had a good job. He uh, worked for a tech company as a programmer, had a good group of friends, he had a nice life, uh, but one day it occurred to Max that his life was a, a little bit confining. Uh, what, it, what occurred to him as he drove to and from work one day was that the people he spent time with tended to all be just like him, right? So the, the people he spent time with, they believed the same things as he did politically and religiously. They looked like him. It was a relatively uh, homogenous group racially, ethnically. They, they basically made the same amount of money as he did. So he, he realized all of a sudden, I've constructed a life where if I don't want to, I don't ever have to engage with somebody who looks different from me, who thinks differently from me, who is different from me in any way. So, so he said, how can I remedy this? He, he really wanted to change this in his life. So he did something that only I think a programmer would think to do. He created for himself an app that used Facebook. And what it did was his app would identify publicly posted events in his area within a certain distance from his home. And he would just pull it up and the app would send him randomly to other people's publicly posted events. And the idea was, I'm going to walk into situations where I don't know the people. They may be completely different. So he said the very first one that he went to, it sent him to a large apartment complex in San Francisco. And he buzzed the buzzer. And these guys called down and they said, who is it? And he said, it's Max. And they said, who? And he said, Max. And they misunderstood him. They thought he said Matt. They actually had a friend named Matt. So they let him up and he said, I walked in and it was a group of, of young Russian guys just having a party. And he explained what was going on and they eventually said, oh, sure, come on in. So he said, I got to have cocktails with a group of Russians. That was my first exposure to this deal. He found himself at a salsa dancing event. He also went to something called acro yoga, which was a cross of acrobatics and yoga. Uh, one Christmas, he decided, you know, I, I'm not going to spend Christmas with my family, but I'm going to allow my app to randomize my Christmas. So he found himself driving to a neighborhood a few miles outside of San Francisco, and he knocked on the door, and there was a little party for friends and family, about 10 other people. And he explained to this woman what he was doing, and he brought her a pie uh, to put her at ease. And she let him in. And there's a video of him sitting in somebody else's living room singing Christmas carols with people he's never met. Now, what's remarkable is uh, he got hooked on this and after a couple years decided to let the, the, the whole algorithm actually randomize his entire life. So he, he took a couple years off of work and he began to live in different places based on where the app told him. So he moved to Germany and then to Vietnam and then to Slovenia and all over the world before he came back to San Francisco. And now he has a website where you can learn how to randomize your own life in case you're interested. I thought, man, what a remarkable thing to do to say, you know what, my life is really, it's defined by the structure I've created, right? My life is really defined by the people that I have chosen to spend time with. How often do we say, I'm going to move out beyond what's familiar to me to engage with people who don't look like me, who don't think like me, 
who might be in a different economic station of life than I am. How often do we do that? Most of us don't, right? It would take some compelling reason for most of us to say, the neighborhoods that I drive by on the way to work, I'm going to spend some time with those folks. The people who think different from me religiously and who look different from me racially, I'm going to intentionally invest and spend time with those men and women. It would take some compelling reason to do that, wouldn't it? Well, the good news this morning is that as we look at the life of Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus not only provides us with a compelling reason to do that, Jesus also models what it looks like to say, I'm not going to stay just within the circle of people that I know, that I feel comfortable with, who look like me, who think like me. Instead, what Jesus does really throughout his entire ministry, but especially in the passage we're going to look at this morning, is Jesus very intentionally crosses barriers, cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, racial barriers, because he has a compelling reason. Because Jesus knows that he alone carries the message of eternal life. And so for Jesus, he says, what's more important than feeling comfortable, what's more important than sticking with people who are familiar, with people who like me, what's more important than that is stepping beyond those barriers to share a message that I have brought the message of life, the gift of eternal life. For everybody, no matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, no matter how much money you make, no matter who you are. And so in John chapter 4, we have a beautiful story of how Jesus moves past these barriers. And the challenge for us this morning, really where I want us to land this morning, is, is really mostly with a question. I want you to ask yourself this. How much of your life is simply determined by your own comfort and familiarity? And beyond that, are you and I willing to step beyond those barriers, beyond those zones, because we have a compelling mission? If Jesus Christ came and brought eternal life, if he is the only path to eternal life, which I believe wholeheartedly, then everybody needs to know. Will we engage with people we often overlook, ignore, drive past? People that you may interact with every single day at the businesses you go to, at the places where you work, in the neighborhoods where you live, will we engage with those who might initially even make us uncomfortable because we carry a message that Jesus Christ died and rose again to bring eternal life. Look with me at John chapter 4, and we're going to see how Jesus did this and then how we can do the same. John chapter 4, let me start in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee again. And he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. 
So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the first thing that we see is this. Right off the bat, for Jesus, no barrier is too great. Now, I want to set up the scene for a little bit because you're going to see just how far Jesus moves forward to take a risk with this woman. Now, the passage begins by saying Jesus is traveling from Judea, which is in the southern region of Israel, and he's going back to Galilee, which is in the north, right? So it's a pretty long journey, over a hundred miles of walking. It would have taken days, maybe even a week, right? And, and, And John says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is really interesting. Let me show you just quickly a map. All right, so in the south, you have uh, Judea, right? So Jesus is down in the south, and he wants to get back up to the north, to Galilee, which is kind of his home area where he's from. Now, you can see the straightest pathway is through Samaria, right? As the bird flies, that's the way you're going to go. Now, what's interesting, though, is a lot of people did not take that route. There were two other ways you could get around to Samaria, One was to cross the Jordan over that direction on the east and go up to Galilee that way. The other was to go all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea and skirt along the Mediterranean Sea. Your more scrupulous Jews would typically have taken one of those other two routes because Samaria is a bad neighborhood. Okay, You don't want to go through Samaria unless you absolutely have to, right? And here's why. Because the Samaritans were not only culturally and somewhat ethnically distinct from the Jews, they were also religiously distinct distinct in some ways, right? The Samaritans were viewed not only as a mixture of Jew and Gentile, they were kind of half-breeds, that's how they were thought of, but they were also viewed as heretics, right? Here's, Here's what had happened in the history of Samaria. When the Assyrians, about Seven or eight hundred years before Jesus was around, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, one of the the ways that they subjugated the people in the northern kingdom of Israel is they got the northern Israelites to intermarry with other Gentiles from all around the world, right? So it may have been the Babylonians or the Phoenicians or whatever. So by the time you get to Jesus' time, they are very racially diluted, so to speak. They're not pure-blood Jews anymore. Not only that, but at some point, the Samaritans, and you see this in the passage, they had begun a different religious practice where they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the prophets or any of the writings after the Pentateuch. As a result, they had built their own little temple on top of Mount Gerizim, right? So the Samaritans were considered heretics, and they were considered traitors to the people of Israel, and even to interact with one, to drink from the same vessel as a Samaritan, could render you ceremonially unclean, just as if you were to eat with a Gentile, right? So that gives you an idea of this area. But, but John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
And I think John tells us that not because primarily geographically he has to go through Samaria, but instead Jesus is on the path that the Father has laid out for him. And so John says he had to go through Samaria because I think the Father has an appointment for Jesus right there at this well in Sychar. Now, as I mentioned, it's a long journey. They've probably been traveling for several days by the time they get to Sychar already. So Jesus sits down by this well. It says it's the sixth hour. That's about noon, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus sits down, and he sends the disciples away to go get some food, right? So they're, they're gone during most of this conversation with this woman. They're at H-E-B picking up apples and tortillas or whatever it may be that they need. As Jesus is sitting there, here comes this woman to draw water from the well. Now, what's interesting is noon would not have been the time that you ordinarily would have come to draw water. Normally, women would come either in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler, right? Just like you don't want to mow your lawn at 1 p.m. They're going to wait until it's cooler, and they're generally going to come in groups. And here's why. And, and, and again, this is significant in the course of the narrative. Wells were kind of a place where men would pick up women. They were known as that sort of place. So if you're at a well and a man begins to speak to you, right? This might be like if you are at the grocery store and some guy sidles up next to you and he goes, I'd like to add you to my list, right? Or something like that. That's the kind of thing that happened at Wells. So you didn't go alone. But here she comes in the heat of the day all by herself, right? Now, time is very significant in the Gospel of John. If you'll remember in chapter 3, this, this Jewish teacher, Nicodemus, had come to Jesus. And when did he come? He came at night, Right? And that's significant. Here you've got a guy who should be, as John says, walking in the light. Remember, Jesus, John tells us at the very beginning, Jesus is the light of the world. Wherever Jesus is, light is shining. He's the one that illuminates to us who God is. And yet here is Nicodemus, who ought to know about God, and he's skulking around in the dark because he really is walking in the dark, just like the Pharisees. But here we have this woman who comes at noon. She comes in the heat of the day, in the brightest time of the day, and she's about to encounter the light of the world who brings light wherever he goes. Right? So she comes up to Jesus at this well, and Jesus immediately begins a conversation with her. He says, hey, will you give me something to drink? And again, this would have been uncomfortable. And she says as much, hey, why are you talking to me? Right? And there, there might be a little bit of cynicism. How is it that you, this high and mighty Jewish man, are talking to me, this lowly Samaritan woman? And Jesus says, hey, if you had known who it is who is speaking to you, and who it is who's asking you for a drink, guess what? You would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. And I love the way that Jesus immediately pivots this conversation, right? She is, she is thrown off, understandably so, because Jesus has just crossed a political barrier, a cultural barrier, a racial barrier, a religious barrier, and a barrier in her mind of what's appropriate between a male and a female at a well, right? Jesus hasn't done anything inappropriate 
But this is uncomfortable socially. And yet what he does is he immediately says, look, the truth is I don't need anything from you. I'm talking to you because of what you need from me. And he says, if you only knew who was talking to you, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Now, it's important to understand, again, living water is obviously a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Right, Living water is something that God provided. And typically in common usage, when you said living water, the difference between living water and stagnant water was the difference between a water in a well and water that flowed. Right, Living water was like a river or a stream. It continually flows. It's replenished from its source. A well is stagnant water. It's drinkable, but it's not that great. And so the woman misunderstands and she says, hey, where are you getting the living water? Where is the running water? I'm looking around. I don't see it. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and he drank from it himself? And I love the dramatic irony. She has no idea who she's talking to because he's infinitely greater than Jacob. And so she says, are you greater than Jacob? She says, where are you going to get this living water? And Jesus says this, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I mentioned again that this this metaphor goes back to the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Jeremiah. An astute reader of John would recognize this when God says, my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, Jesus is hearkening back to this beautiful passage from the prophet Jeremiah, and what he is saying is this, I am the fountain of living water. The metaphor of living water is this, that if you know God through Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God lives within you. And when the Spirit of God lives within you, He is a fountain that flows up unto eternal life. That is, if you know Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God lives within you, you'll never thirst again because you're never going to die. Whether you have physical water or not, whether you die physically or not, you will live forever. And the life that begins when you believe in Jesus is a life that goes on forever. It bubbles up unto abundant life now and eternal life with God forever and ever. Right, That's what Jesus is saying. Later on in John chapter 7, he would say the same thing at the feast of the Passover. He'd stand up and he'd go, if anybody thirsts, come to me and drink. And out from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. When you were a kid, you might have sung a song maybe at camp or in Sunday school that went something like this. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You remember that? Some of you kids know that makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. And you would get really excited when it got to the chorus, right? Because you'd get to go, spring up, oh well, gush, 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 within my soul. You remember that? Spring up, oh well, and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, and give to me what? That life abundantly. I think Jesus likes that song. Some morning, maybe, Kenny, we can do it. I don't know where you are. Okay, We'll all do the motions. That's what Jesus is saying. Believe in me, 
and from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, this woman doesn't understand the metaphor as most of us probably wouldn't. So she says, hey, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And here's where Jesus moves from breaking barriers to the second principle of the passage, which is this. No person is too confused, too lost, too far away for Jesus to reach. Okay, here's what happens. She says, hey, I want that living water. Who wouldn't, right? This is a woman who's saying, look, I would like to have that faucet in my kitchen because I don't want to have to walk over here every day and fill this thing up and walk back. And here's what Jesus says to her in response. Look now at verses 16 to 26. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So in response to her request, she says, give me this living water. Jesus just doesn't say, okay, here is how uh, you pray the, the right prayer. I find that interesting, right? He doesn't open up a tract, but what does he do? He says, go call your husband and come back here. And she very tersely says, I ain't got one. And he says, you're right. And then he proceeds to tell her some things about her life that only somebody who is speaking from God could have known. Remember, Jesus cannot Google stalk her. He doesn't know about her before this conversation. And yet he knows that she's had five husbands and now is living in some kind of an arrangement with a man who is not her husband. Right now, now I want, I want to talk about this for a minute because it seems like a very strange pivot for Jesus to make. Why does he go from talking about the living water to talking about her marital history? And here's what's important to understand. A lot of times when this passage is discussed, this woman is portrayed as being extremely immoral, right? And, and there, that is very possible. That is possible. But, but boy, what you have to know is that in the ancient world, women were generally very powerless when it came to matters of marriage and divorce and widowhood, Right? If you were single or widowed or divorced as a grown woman in the ancient world, you were extremely vulnerable economically. You could not go out and get a job very easily. It was hard to support yourself. Right? So, so the only way to do it was to be married. Now, it seems like what's happened in this woman's life, because the other issue you need to know is only men 
were allowed to initiate divorce. Women could not and get remarried. They would not have been allowed to do it repeatedly. So one of two things has happened in this woman's life. Either she has been extremely unfortunate and five husbands in a row have died, or she's been repeatedly divorced or a combination of both of those things. And so now in her desperation, she's living out of wedlock with perhaps the only man left in town who will have her. She's used up and desperate and alone. And how does that relate to the living water? Because I think Jesus is saying to her this, you're absolutely right. You've got a need that no husband's going to fulfill for you. She's probably seen death. She's probably been abandoned. She's probably made decisions that are sinful out of her desperation and her loneliness. And Jesus says, you're looking for life in the wrong spots. You're looking for life in the wrong places. I have a river of living water. Anybody who drinks from it will never thirst again. You won't have to go from man to man, from home to home, from place to place, but instead you will have a secure and eternal life in me. One that will never end. Now the woman doesn't really want to talk a whole lot about this issue of her marriages. She immediately changes the subject. And she says, hey, I, I can see that you're, you're a prophet. You seem to know some stuff that I'd rather you not know. So let me ask you a question. And she turns to what was a big theological debate of the day. She says, you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans, we worship here. We've always worshiped here on Mount Gerizim. And remember, this goes back to this critical misunderstanding or, or difference between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? And it was that the Samaritans said, only the Pentateuch is what we follow. As a result, they read the book of Deuteronomy where God had said that Mount Gerizim would be a place of blessing. And so they worshiped God on Mount Gerizim. But later in the scripture, God told Solomon, what? You're going to set up a temple in Jerusalem, in this place. Right? So they have this difference of opinion. So what this woman says is, I've got a guy here who clearly is a prophet, and I want to turn to this question. I want to seek a neutral authority. Uh, several weeks ago, I walked into the kitchen, and my kids were having a debate. And maybe you've walked in on something like this, and it wasn't like an angry argument, but their debate was this. Is water wet or does water merely make other things wet? Right? You're thinking about it now, aren't you? They, they went back and forth, and they all had their arguments, right? And, and, and they pulled different arguments into their case, right? And they talked about it for a while. And I said, how are we going to resolve this? And one of them said, uh, ask Jito. That's what they call my dad. They said, if he gives a ruling will accept it, right? Because he has a scientific background. So I texted him and I said, Dad, I need you to resolve an argument between the kids. And I did not tell him which child held which view uh, because that would have prevented him from ever giving us an answer. 
And I said, is water wet or does it make other things wet? This is the first response that he gave me. I I actually copied it down. Wetness is a thin film of water left on any object water touches. The water left can't easily get off the object because of capillary pressure. So I would say water is wetness. And I said, I need a ruling, Solomon. Like I need you (laughs) to give me a clear answer. This is huge. And so he texted back, water makes things wet, right? And so one of the kids wins, one of the kids does not win. Now, why do I share that? Because that's essentially what this woman is doing. She says, look, we've, we've got a disagreement. You're the authority. We need you to resolve it. Whatever you say, I'll adhere to, right? And it feels like a total pivot from their previous discussion. And in some ways it is. In other ways, it's not, because here's what's going on. Jesus has just told her, I'm the way for you to know God. And she says, hey, we don't agree on how to know God. We can't even agree on which spot to put the temple. So you answer me that one and maybe I'll trust you. Right? And here's what Jesus says to her. He goes, look, the time is coming. And in fact, it even now is when that question really won't matter. He says that the Jewish people, we are right, by the way. Because we worship what we know, because salvation is from the Jews. That is the the covenant promise made to David of a Messiah that came through the Jewish people. But he says, look, it's not going to matter because a time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Jesus goes straight back to the point he's been making all along. You want to know how to worship the Father. It's in spirit and truth. That is, you need the living water. You need the spirit of God. And then what will happen is you will become a living temple of the Holy Spirit. Geography will no longer matter. And the woman says, well, I know that Messiah is coming, right? This is her way of saying, maybe we need some other authority out here. When he gets here, he'll explain it. Jesus says, I am the one. Well, just at that point in the conversation, the disciples come back with the tortillas and apples, right? And they, they see this conversation, and it says they, they don't know what's going on, but they don't want to say anything, right? They have learned, perhaps, over time that asking dumb questions of Jesus gets them in trouble. So they don't say anything. But here's what happens. This is, this is maybe one of the most beautiful parts of the story. It says, um, at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So look at this. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. What has Jesus done? He's noticed this woman that others have overlooked, ignored, abused, and abandoned. And now she's an evangelist. And I love that she leaves the water pot behind. That's the whole reason she came there in the first place. And and, and as a reader, we're supposed to go, wait a second, isn't she going to be thirsty? And John would say, no. Didn't you read the rest of the passage? Anybody who has the water I give them will never thirst. Right now, literally, of course, she's eventually going to have to drink physical water again. 
But John gives us this detail. She forgets why she even came to the well in the first place because now she's believed in Jesus and bubbling within her is a river of life. And so she runs back to town and she's not fancy with her approach. She just simply says, hey, come and see this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. And you can see these men in the town going, there's probably some juicy stuff in there, right? So they head back toward the well. Meanwhile, the disciples say, hey, hey, Jesus, eat something. And look at this. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Right? This is like when you go to the store and you pick something up and you come home and your, your wife says, no, we already bought that. And you go, well, why did I even go? Right? That's what they're saying. Did somebody bring him food? Did that lady bring him food? Did somebody go to the store for him? What, what happened? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Here's what we see in this last section. Not only is no barrier too great, no person too lost, but for Jesus, no need is more urgent. The disciples, they come and they say, hey, we've been walking a long time. You're hungry. We just went and got food. You need to eat something. And Jesus says, hey, I've got food, right? And this parallels what he had told the woman. If you know me, you've got water. Jesus says, if I am doing a God's will, I've got food to eat. And here's what he's getting at. There are things more important than eating. Now that's a challenge, right? A few weeks ago, uh, my family and I, we walked into a restaurant uh, right around dinner time, and we wanted to put our names on the list. And I said, we need a table for five. And this woman says, okay, it's going to be two hours and 15 minutes. And I said, goodbye. <laughs> we'll go somewhere else. Right? I could build my own restaurant by the time you sit me and get me some food. And I knew what was going to happen was that after about an hour of sitting there, we were all going to be so hungry and cranky that we weren't going to be speaking to each other nicely, right? Because that need for food would rise to a level of urgency, that would drown out any other concern. Maybe you can access that feeling or that memory in your mind when you were so hungry that nothing else matters. Here's what Jesus is saying. For Jesus, he feels that level of urgency about following the Father's will. He feels that level of urgency and more. 
because he's carrying a message of eternal life. And he says to the disciples, I want you to look up and you see the fields were white, are white for harvest. Now, what's significant about this is, of course, most people in Jesus' day, they didn't have dyed clothing, right? Because that was expensive. So what would they wear? They would wear white robes. This woman has gone into the city to get the people of the village, and I believe they're coming back through the fields between the city and the well. And Jesus says, I want you to look up and you see the fields are white for harvest. And here come these men dressed in white robes to come and see Jesus. And he says, you have an opportunity now to reap. I planted the seed and you get to reap the harvest. Lunch can wait. And so these men come and they hear about Jesus and they believe. And I love this story because it shows us the heart of Jesus and the power of Jesus that he boldly approaches a person that other people would have passed right by. And he turns her into a woman who leads her whole village to Jesus. As Jesus left after his resurrection and he ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples. And he said to them, I want you to go now into all the world. And you make disciples of all the nations. That is, people who don't think like you, people who don't look like you, people who don't believe what you believe, but they need to know me. So don't just walk past. There is no person too far beyond the reach of God's grace. And so what kind of mission do we carry that would compel us to step out of our zones of familiarity. We carry the message of living water. That Jesus Christ died for our sin and that he rose again. And all who believe in him can have eternal life and all who believe in him will have life with no end that begins today. So as we close, in just a moment, we're going to take communion. And uh, as the men are getting ready, I want, I want us to ask a couple of questions related to this passage. Because I think there are probably two categories very broadly of people in the room this morning. One is uh, you may be in a category of people that you say, I actually identify with this woman. But I feel far away from God. Maybe you feel like you have been judged by others because of things that have happened or things you have done in your past. Maybe you feel out on the margins. And if that is you, I hope you see from this passage, Jesus would bust every barrier to find you. He came from heaven and earth to save you. So have you met him? Do you know that Jesus loves you so much that he died for you and he rose again to give you life and to forgive you of your sin so that you have that fountain of living water springing up to eternal life? I think the second category 
in this room are those that we may see around us, men and women like this woman, who perhaps make us uncomfortable. Because right now, maybe they they are worshiping a different God. Or they simply look different. Or politically, they express things that make us angry or uncomfortable. And the question for us is this, will, will we cross barriers to introduce Jesus to those who need to meet him, right? And, and for, for many of you, that can happen right here in your current sphere of influence. Just for, for a moment or two, I want, I want us to think about who is just one person, maybe somebody you know from a, from a restaurant or a shop that you go to frequently and you see them all the time. And yet you've never engaged with them. Or if you have, you've never moved forward to tell them about the living water. For some, it may be that in your heart and your mind, as you think over the next year or two, you sense the Lord's Spirit stirring to say, maybe you're going to even go overseas or to another culture altogether for a short period of time, for a long period of time. Right? Because we said at the beginning, what would compel you to, to break out of your comfort zone? Only if you had a message that matters for eternity. And we do. In the months to come, we're hoping to lay out at least one or two missions opportunities that will happen next summer. Right? But in the meanwhile, start where you are. I would encourage us just this week, think of of one or two people, one or two people that you go, man, I, I have spoken with that person at my office, at some business in my neighborhood. I've spoken with that person just very briefly. But maybe you've pulled away either because you, you say, I lack the time to engage, or I'm afraid to engage, or I don't know what to say. All I, all I want to ask is, is this week, begin to pray and say, God, I, I ask that you would give me courage and give me an opportunity. Give me courage and give me an opportunity to share the good news. Pray it every day with that person on your mind and see how the Lord answers and move forward as Jesus did to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. As the men come forward now with communion, why don't we spend a few minutes in prayer thanking God that that Jesus crossed space and time to reach us so that we can know the living water. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we this morning proclaim the death of your Son 
and we rejoice in his resurrection and we anticipate his return. We praise you that through Jesus, you didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us on the outside. You came and got us. And so because of that, not only are we grateful, but Father, we are compelled to do the same in reflection and imitation of Jesus. Lord, we know that around us every day are people who are outside. They need to know Jesus. I pray because of the mercy and the love and grace that you have given us, we would extend it to others. I pray we would take risks if needed to proclaim the death and resurrection of the one who gave us eternal life through whom we have a fountain of living water that springs up to eternal life. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Father, we praise you. So we just saying that there isn't any wall you won't kick down. There's no barrier too great for the love of Jesus Christ. There's no lie you won't tear down. Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus to light up the shadows, that he's the light of the world. And Father, we, we carry the light. And so we pray we'd shine it into dark places. Father, we pray for each of us. As we leave here, we'd have a name or a face or a place in our minds. And we wouldn't just walk out, Father, and and think, yeah, that would be a great thing to do, to to proclaim the message of Jesus, but that that we would follow through as, as your son followed through. And because of that, Father, we have life. So we praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.